We're going to be in chapter 12 of Revelation once again, of John's Apocalypse. So you can either look at that on your outline or you can open up your Bible to there. If you remember from last time, I said that a lot of people feel like chapter 12 is the key to understanding the whole apocalypse. And so we're, and we're going to continue kind of looking at the, the same thing that we looked at last time, but maybe from a little bit of a different perspective. Last week, we considered the introduction portion of the chapter. And what happened there was that John received this new vision, which set forth this drama of redemptive history that it was kind of like a summary um, of redemption that's told in God's word. And so we're introduced, you remember, to a woman uh, who was symbolic for the church. And then she also has, she was pregnant. And um, that baby that the woman had was symbolic for the covenant promises that are contained in Christ Jesus, for the Messiah himself. And those, um, those, the symbolism was met in a number of different ways throughout redemptive history, in which this woman was the people of God, and specifically the church, the true Israel. And it goes all the way back uh, to that first promise of God for the hope of the gospel, the proto-evangelium there in the garden right after the fall where God pronounced curse upon Satan, uh, the devil or the serpent there in, in Genesis 3. And again, the, the woman who was pregnant with a child, which was again symbolic of those gospel promises in Christ. And that child, of course, was none other than Christ Jesus, the savior of the world, the snake crusher, the only mediator between God and man, the one who can redeem us from the curse that was brought upon us through Adam's transgression. But they had an enemy, and that enemy was described as this giant, fearsome red dragon, and the dragon's intent was to devour the child of the woman. And so we considered a number of ways in which this drama was prefigured throughout the whole Old Testament, leading all the way up to the point of the Virgin Mary who gave birth to Jesus. And that dragon, of course, was symbolic of Satan and his attempts to thwart the advancement of the gospel and to oppose the kingdom of God. But, of course, he fails at this. The woman brings forth the baby. The dragon doesn't devour him, and he's caught up to God to God's throne, and he's victorious, and the dragon is defeated. And the realization of the beginning of his defeat, the dragon's defeat, is at hand, and the woman we read at that point, she flees into the wilderness for a span of 1,260 days, the same period of time that was prescribed to those two witnesses back in Revelation 11, which, again, reminds us that this is referring to the church living in between the time period of Christ's first and second coming. That the woman, in that sense, even is symbolic of the church as, as, and we as the church, along with the saints for the past 2,000 years, are living in this wilderness in times of great tribulation in which God is nourishing us and he is persevering us up until that day when Christ returns again, the parousia. And at that time, when Jesus comes again, the dragon, that devil, as well as sin and death will be defeated finally and forever. But the Holy Spirit isn't done telling us the details of this drama of redemption through these visions. He's going to elaborate on it some more, but now in the rest of chapter 12 from a different angle, from a different perspective. So this is the, sort of like the recapitulation that we saw with the seal and the trumpet judgments. 
It's showing us the same thing, but now it's stating it in a different way, giving us more information, more details that we would be encouraged. Because remember, the Holy Spirit gave John these visions and therefore gave us this book of Revelation so that we would be blessed and understand it. And so he's being more detailed. So let's read the text and we'll pray afterwards and then consider what it is that we are being taught there. We're going to begin at verse 7 in chapter 12 and read the rest of it. So the word of the Lord. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in all in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished. For a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this text. And we under or we recognize, even just from reading it now, how different it is than many other portions of your holy word. And we pray for understanding then that we might see the things that are being communicated here and understand have clarity about them and understand them with the heart of faith, Lord. So we depend upon you, Holy Spirit and ask that you would guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so much, much different kind of text, right, than we're used to reading, like in the Gospel accounts or even in the Old Testament. It really does come across as this sort of a story. And God is using this chapter to, again, once again, to tell this drama of redemption, that the way history is playing out is God's plan, and it's happening for his glory so that, he might purchase a bride for his uh, beloved son and have his son be exalted and glorified, in which he already is. So, verse 7, John is describing the same period of time as he was in verses 1 through 6, but it's from a different perspective. Again, it's that recapitulation. It's not this time on the struggle on earth between the woman and the dragon that we saw throughout the great history or the great drama of redemptive history. But this time, what you could kind of think of it as is like a behind the scene glimpse 
of the spiritual realm and the heavenly struggle, which at this point results in the banishment of Satan from the presence of God. And then in verse 13, the perspective changes again back to the earth, but now it's this spiritual struggle that the dragon inflicts upon the church. So let's first think of this heavenly aspect. So once the woman gives birth to the Messiah, the, the, the Christ is how it was put in our text, uh, and the Christ has come, Satan suffers a great defeat. Remember, again, it's that fulfillment of the Proto-Evangelium where the seed of Eve bruises the serpent's head and the serpent bruises the seed's heel. And John, again, describes this in apocalyptic terms as a war between angelic beings. So if you notice verse 7 and 8, verse 7 and 8, uh, we read, Now war arose in heaven, Michael, who is one of the only two named angels in Scripture, most people would consider Michael to be an archangel, like a leader among other angels. And so Michael and his angels are fighting against the dragon. And the, the dragon and his angels fight back, but he's defeated. And there is no longer any place for them in heaven, we read in verse 8. And then as a result of this defeat, in verse 9, John says that the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Again, we have no doubt that... The serpent in Genesis 3 was, in fact, Satan. Uh, it's not just simply a snake. It's, as John here, in, by inspired revelation, says that that ancient serpent is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He's thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So if you remember from last time, when the tail of the dragon was said to sweep down a third of the stars, which had allusion back to the trumpet judgments and the spiritual warfare that the demonic um, realm would participate in here on the earth. Well, what we see here in our text for tonight is that after this battle in heaven, not only is Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent cast down, but his angels, his messengers, other demons were thrown down with him. This is what Jesus is speaking of in Luke 10, 18 as well. When he says, when Jesus is talking and he says in verse 18, he says, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And we should think forward a bit into the apocalypse as well, because this is also the same thing being expressed later in this book. The chapter that all the different millennial views like hinge upon and argue over, uh, chapter 20 it describes this same event, but again, from a different perspective. When the thousand years, the millennial age, uh, are to begin. So Revelation 20, verse 1 through 3 says this. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, and he must be released for a little while. So, but there are more details there, right? And we'll address those when we get there. But you see what the apocalyptic vision is doing, I hope, which I get is somewhat difficult, a uh, difficult thing to say since so many people come to this book and are confused and they feel like it's hard to make sense of. But what's happening is John and the church are being given these, these repeating and different perspectives so that we have like one larger picture that explains it all in more details. And that picture, what the information that we receive is, is meant to comfort us. 
It's meant to bless us. And praise God for how he decided to give us this information even. I mean, Revelation 12 reads almost like it could be a fantasy novel or something like that. But this is inspired word of God in an apocalyptic language to communicate to us eternal truth. So, Satan, having been defeated by Jesus Christ through his death and his resurrection, he's cast down to the earth, he's banished to an abyss, he's bound by the preaching of the gospel, and now he's enraged. He's, he's wrathful because his days are numbered. And that turns out to be a difficult thing. Because like any mortally wounded animal that's then in survival mode, Satan is more dangerous now than ever, and we'll get more on that later. But as a result of Satan's defeat, heaven resounds with joy, we read. There are sounds of victory and celebration. Like imagine a a championship parade, but way greater than that. And so verses 10 and 12 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. You see how happy they are. The the accuser is thrown down, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, because of all this has happened, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He's filled with wrath because he knows that his time is short. All that remains from this perspective is that the Christ would come again. Remember last week how we looked over redemptive history and we saw all these different events from the garden to Moses to Esther, through some of the kings of Israel, ways in which the dragon was seeking to destroy the woman and her child before he even came. Well, now, with the birth of Christ and then his ascension to the throne of God, there are no other opportunities like that. All that's left is for the parousia, the second coming to take place. And it is certain, it's certain because of the defeat that was already imposed upon Satan at the cross and Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And now, with all of this as well, Satan is no longer allowed to enter heaven to make accusation against the saints. And why? Verse 11, because they've overcome the devil by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. In other words, we're saved by Christ alone. It's his sacrifice that makes us conquerors, and the faith that he gives us is the instrument by which we believe in Christ and our testimony, Mia agrees. See, But it's, it's Christ alone who saves us. And since our sins have been paid in full, and since Christ's blood washes them away, removing every hint and trace of sin, <coughs> excuse me, how can Satan accuse us of anything? Since God himself has cleansed us from our sins. That's why the Apostle Paul would say in Romans 8, now there, is, now there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? It's because our sins have been fully paid for by Christ. The devil has no room to accuse us because they've all past, present, future sins have all been satisfied by Jesus' death on the cross for them. And so the saints shouldn't fear death. 
And they shouldn't fear Satan, who can kill the body and can't touch the soul. Christ has done it all for them. We all know people, I think, who are close to death or have known. You might think of Sandy even right now. But the, the, the very same grace that saves a sinner is the, is the same grace that carries the redeemed sinner to the throne of God when their bodies die. We have complete confidence in that. And Satan can't stop it. And so this why, that's why in the verses that we read, there's this rejoicing in heaven. Because the saints are glad. Because Satan, even he's defeated, although he still has some teeth left in him as we see. But our salvation is secure. The gospel now is going out to the nations and the devil is bound, as chapter 20 says. But again, he's not totally without teeth. He still has a purpose to play in this drama of redemptive history that's being explained to us here in chapter 12. So we have a warning from John here also. Woe to the earth and to the sea, for the devil has been cast down and his wrath is great because his time is short. And so in verse 13, John returns to describing the battle which rages on the earth between the woman and, the, and Satan, the dragon. And this time the battle takes shape after Satan is cast down from heaven. He's no longer able to accuse the brethren there before, before God. And according to John, this is what we read in 13 and 14, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and, a to- and times and half a time. Once again, the apocalyptic symbols that John uses is drawing upon the Old Testament. They're drawing upon images that God's covenant people in the Old Testament would be aware of and or would be aware of in the Old Testament, especially through their period in the Exodus. <clears throat> in Exodus 19.4, the Lord says to Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And so just as Yahweh had done for Israel in the Old Covenant, he does also for the woman now here in this present age that we are living in. The church is being preserved or persevered in the wilderness by God. We're carried along eagles' wings for that familiar now time period of 1,260 days or three and a half years, or how it's said here, a time times and half a time. There's no positive outlook for the deceiver now. The gates of Hades themselves won't prevail against the church. The church is militant in this age. The church is on an offensive battle against the kingdom of darkness, and we're carried by the Lord and nourished by him, he says. And we now, because of God's revelation to John and to the other biblical authors, the other apostles, we even know the devil's schemes now. John describes Satan in verse 15. And, well, verse 15, and he says, the, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep away her with a flood. And it's, it's tied to what it says in verse 17 about the dragon being furious with the woman and is wanting to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
And so, of course, you know, the, the imagery is not literal. It's symbolic, just like with the rest of what we've been reading. But if you remember that in Revelation 1.16, John describes a sharp sword that comes out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus, out of the mouth of the Son of Man. That, of course, is not a literal sword, but it was symbolic of the sword, or symbolic of the power of God's word, which has the ability to divide between soul and spirit and joint and marrow, we would read in Hebrews 4, or from bone and marrow. And so what does Satan do since he is not able to conquer the church directly? He attempts to deceive her. So therefore the serpent, the dragon, opens his mouth and imitating the powers of the Son of Man, he spews forth his own deceptive words to deceive the people of God, symbolized by a great flood. Uh, this is the, the spirit of Antichrist that has already gone forth into the world to deceive the people of God through false teaching, which was already plaguing the churches described in the seven letters that are contained in the opening chapters of Revelation. It's the spirit of Antichrist which is already at work in the world, as John puts it in his uh, short epistles. And that should be obvious to us, I hope. And if you notice what's going on in the world, and has been going on in the world, it should be somewhat obvious that this is what the devil, the deceiver, is doing. Not only are there false religions, which stand contrary to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, but there are many perversions of Christianity that attempt to be passed off as Christian. And then there's the spirit of the age and secularism and wokeness and vain spirituality. It's, it's all around us. We were just talking even a couple months ago, like how many different little crystal shops keep popping up around in the East Bay area? Uh, it, do we need like 10 of these? We don't need even one of them. But What's happening is these things are engulfing the church like a flood. They're engulfing the woman, the people of God, like a flood. But the church will again be safe through it all and kept pure by Christ and his word, which would include church discipline even when false teaching and abhorrent behavior is celebrated. You have churches, you know, who today, they won't do church discipline. And because of that, they can't really even be considered a church. Church discipline is hard, it hurts, but it's necessary because it keeps the flood at bay. It acts like putting sandbags around the church and to keep it from being swept away in the flood. It's God's providential means of protecting the church. Uh, the Belgic Confession points out that Scripture reveals three necessary marks of a church. In other words, if you don't have one of these marks, then you don't have a biblically faithful church, a true church. And those three marks are the right preaching of the word, the right practice of the two sacraments, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then church discipline. Uh, if you get two correct and you get one wrong, that's a red flag, right? And so we read in verse 16, but the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened up its mouth, and it swallowed the river the dragon had poured from his mouth. Now, think of, think of what's being said, because it's somewhat difficult in, in the language that it's ex being expressed of as, but it actually really makes perfect sense in light of several Old Testament texts. In Numbers 16, you might remember, 
uh, with Korah's rebellion. There were men who were in sin. And we read that uh, they were you know, calling out Moses as not faithfully teaching the Lord and them wanting to have as much authority as God had given unto Moses. And we read that the ground opened up and swallowed the false priests of Israel. God's judgment, his discipline on those who sought to deceive his people. And there's an opportunity for them to repent before that happens, but they don't. And as soon as Moses finished speaking in verses 31 to 33, we read that the ground under them, these priests, Korah's people, split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and their goods. Same type of language is being used here in Revelation 12. They went down alive to the grave, we continue to read in number 16, with everything they owned, the earth closed over them and they perished and they were gone from the community. They were put out. And in this example, permanently, because God is just and he knows what he's doing. But that's a, a type of what the church is supposed to do in church discipline, to put out those who are deceiving, those who are falsely a part of it. It's the same thing um, that's being expressed here in Revelation 12. So John is saying that just as the ground swallowed Korah's men alive, which is a, a picture of excommunication in the church, so too will God ensure that the flood of satanic lies will not overwhelm the church. And he does that often through church discipline. Not only do we have the image of God's judgment coming upon false teachers, um, symbolically depicted by the earth swallowing up the river of satanic lies, but there are covenant promises to consider here as well. Throughout um, the prophet Isaiah, God promises his people this in verse, chapter 43 too. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flames will not consume you. And the reason he gives is because he is the Holy One of Israel, God our Savior. And so hear me please, you guys. What the church is supposed to take from this, what the Lord is saying to his church is that when we take refuge in Christ and his covenant promises, Satan's lies and his deceit become powerless. Satan is defeated by the truth. Don't, don't look at the world and the events in your life through your emotions and even through the specific events uh, which are trials and tribulations in our life. Instead, remember the covenant promises of God. That is what is true. We know Satan's devices. We know his schemes. They're being told to us here symbolically through apocalyptic literature. And so his power against the church is, is forfeited, really, when we understand these things, because Christ is victorious. And so, says John, after being frustrated two times now, this dragon, verse 17 the dragon becomes furious with the woman and he goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stands on the sand of the sea. So you see, this isn't just an issue for John's original audience. The rest of the woman's offspring are to be pursued by the dragon. Remember, Christ is the child and the church is among many different um, things we could say, is the body of Christ. 
the church in union with Christ then is rightly called the offspring of the woman as well because of our union with Christ, because of that relationship and the, the change that happens to us when we are saved and made a new creation and united to Christ. And the church has all of the covenant promises of God in Christ. And this gives ways then to attacks from another character in the drama, the beast. The dragon will wage his war through the agency of the beast, which is those antichrist governments and magistrates who persecute the church and who at times are allowed by God even to wage war upon the saints. And the account of the God-hating and blasphemous beast will be looked at next time in chapter 13, which is how this chapter 12 ends. Uh, this dragon is standing on the sea, which is often a, a picture for tribulation that is coming. So as we finish up here, though, let's be mindful of what John says to Christ's church which must face this, the rage of Satan after he's cast down to the earth. The, the idea of having like your best life now, this theology of glory that asserts that a true Christian won't go through trials and battles with sin here in this life is a lie from the devil. It's part of that flood that comes from his mouth. And despite the dragon's rage, he can't defeat us. Rather, John says, we overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And we didn't even love our lives unto death, is what he says about the church. And so here again, we're reminded of the weapons that God gives to us, which equip us for this struggle that we are all involved in. God has given us the gospel, the power of God unto salvation for both Jew and Greek alike, Romans 1 says. And think of what the gospel proclaims to you. The gospel doesn't say you need to do this or you need to do that. It doesn't say that you need to respond like this or respond like that or that you must maintain this or that. The gospel announces to us that Christ died for our sins and that he's been raised for our justification. It's what Christ has done for us. That's why it's such good news. It's not dependent upon our ability because we're dead in our sins before we are saved. And Christ Jesus' actions on our, on our behalf reconciles us to God so that we might delight in the Lord God because of what he has done. We don't have to first be cleaned up to come to Christ. No, he died for the ungodly to justify us. And then it's Christ who cleans us up. And then we delight in God because of what he has done to us in the new birth and regeneration. And we delight in God because of the rest that we have in Christ through the gospel, through Christ's victory. And since the guilt of sin has been removed, Christ paying our debt in full, that means that Satan's accusations have no grounds in our lives. No longer can he accuse us before God. Sin no longer holds us down as a heavy weight. It's, it's truly, its power is broken. When the Christian gives himself or herself over to sin, it's because they're, they're choosing to. It's not because they are actually bound by it. The penalty has been paid in full, and the truth of the gospel has set us free. 
And we still, of course, have guilt when we sin as Christians, but we can't let that guilt turn into something that Satan uses to cause us to be depressed and feel like you know, we have lost our salvation. That guilt should be what turns us to the Lord to remind us of the gospel that says, no, Christ shed his blood. My sins have been atoned for and I'm accepted on him and I know that my God is quick to forgive me and then by the grace we have in the Holy Spirit, we seek to live a life that's pleasing to God out of what Jesus has first done for us. And since Jesus Christ has conquered death and the grave and his resurrection, we need not fear, we need not even fear death. Of course, you know, no one likes to die, but even death, for as bad as it is, even that can't separate us from the love with which God has loved us. Because remember, even if the beast is permitted to take our lives, which we'll get into in the next chapter, remember what Revelation 7 said. When saints die here upon the earth, we come to life, as it were, and we reign with Christ. They're from heaven. And then we take our, when we take our places before the throne with God, in other words, we join that multitude that was so vast that it couldn't even be numbered as we await for the resurrection at the end of this age. We, we know the schemes of the devil, friends. We know the, what he tries to do with this, this flood that comes out of his mouth, the false teaching that he exposes us to. We we're being told of him here in this book and we see it in many ways around us. But John's point is simply this. We overcome the devil and his works by the blood of the Lamb. And therefore, we need not fear that which comes against the church. Make no mistake, there will be things that come against us. We can make bad decisions. We often will. But we need not fear the results of these things because God is sovereign. He is in control. And we need not even fear death itself. And why? It's because through the shed blood and the triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have overcome all of our enemies. Christ has done that for us. So let's pray and then take any questions you might have. Our Father in heaven, even as Satan is described here as a dragon, we know that he would be way too much for any of us. Even all of our collective strength by together would not be enough to overcome this angelic being that was created by you. So we thank you for the battle in which you wage uh, for your glory's sake to save us and redeem us, even knowing that there was some sort of angelic battle in heaven, which was a part of all of this that even coincided with the, the birth of our Savior. And we ask that you would encourage our hearts so that whatever comes before us, that we would remember that at the end of the day, Satan has already been defeated. His accusations against us are unfounded because Christ has satisfied the penalty that all of our sins deserve. Even when our own sinning causes us to feel guilt, Lord, we pray that you would use that as a means to sanctify us and grow us and teach us to hate the sin in our life that remains. And from there, to be all the more grateful for the full atonement that was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. May you be glorified always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
<clears throat> All right, guys, anything I could try to clear up? Or maybe something I didn't touch on that you were hoping? It's a really interesting text, right? I mean, Revelation 12, even going into 13 and 14, it just, to me at least, it doesn't sound like anything else that you really read. Maybe other parts in Revelation, certainly. But like when you read through the Old Testament, and especially in the New Testament, the way that God communicates these truths through this apocalypse literature lends itself, I think, to a greater understanding of the things that are, that are happening in our lives even now. So, glad to go through this book with you guys. Let me stop this.